I'm going to be sharing about the Great Commission, which involves both evangelism, reaching the world around us for Christ, but then also discipling those people that, that come to know Christ and helping them grow in their walks with God. And Russ is just a great example of that. He's been that in my life, and he continues to do that. I'm going to start out with Matthew 28, 18-20. This is the passage that is typically referred to as the Great Commission. Jesus gave us this huge commandment. And it's also, like Jeff was talking about this morning, one of the most exciting and riveting things that we get to do with our lives. I mean, this is amazing. This is amazing stuff. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I don't think there's one other place in the New Testament where Jesus says, All authority has been given to me, so go do something. I think this is the only time. So I know this is a big deal. This is serious. So Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age so this is a big deal I I like to refer to the Great Commission as the third greatest commandment the first two are well Jesus talks about them in Mark 12, 29-31 he says the most important one the greatest commandment answer Jesus is this Hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength the second is this love your neighbor as yourself there is no commandment greater than these so the first greatest commandment is to love God with everything second greatest commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. but the next biggest commandment he ever gives us is to reach this world for him both through sharing the gospel and evangelism and then encouraging other believers in their walks with God, especially younger believers, teaching them to obey everything that He commanded us. That's the Great Commission, the third greatest commandment. And I also want to throw this out for you guys. It's the fulfillment of the first two. Because as I love God, what does it say that I'm going to do? I'm going to love Him with all my strength. I can, I can use the strengths God's given me to further His kingdom. Exactly what Jeff was talking about. To love Him with all my mind and with all my soul with all my heart, that to me implies a life sold out for God, willing to be used however He sees fit to further His kingdom. So the Great Commission is the third greatest commandment, but also a way of fulfilling the first greatest commandment of loving God. It's also a way of fulfilling the second greatest commandment. Because what else could I ever do for somebody that would be better than helping them have a relationship with Christ? There's nothing that goes beyond that. I mean, that's the best thing I could do for somebody For a younger Christian, most of you guys remember times where somebody has come alongside you and helped you grow in your walk with God. Paul, I know Randy has come alongside you as your pastor, and you guys meet one-on-one, and he encourages you in your walk with God. How significant is that in your walk with God to be growing in that way? Isn't that that huge? I know, like, my relationship with Russ, I mean, there's no value I could assign to that how significant that's been over the last nine years. He's fulfilling the second greatest commandment to love his neighbor as himself by encouraging me in my walk with God. So not only is the Great Commission the third greatest commandment, but it is a way of fulfilling the first and second greatest commandments. So I think that is why it's such a significant thing to God. Russ said the Great Commission is the greatest challenge given by the greatest person for the greatest good. I also believe that it's the greatest expression of love towards God and other human beings possible. 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Imagine that. The God of the universe. We're His co-workers. Doesn't that just humble you? As if God needed my help. But He chooses to use me. And so many times I look at the job that He's given me with disdain. 
don't want to share my faith. I'm scared to share my faith. That's that's the job that he's given us to be fellow workers with him in. And I want my attitude to be one of thankfulness, that he would consider me to be a part of that great work versus disdain for that awesome, adventurous risk and challenge that he's given me that has so much impact. How many of you guys are married? Most of you guys. How many of you guys feel that when your wife does something with you that is special to you, it develops your relationship? Or if you hike or camp or fish, if your wife does things with you, doesn't that develop relationship? What about with other guys? Don't you feel like you grow closer to other men when you share a common interest? I want to encourage you with this, that as we join as fellow workers with Christ in His great commission, that we develop an intimacy with Christ that doesn't come any other way. Because we're both striving for the same goal. And I get to be on the same page with Him, doing what matters to Him, and doing what He thinks is important. And so I get to learn His heart. I get to grow closer to Him through that. So, so I hope that this is starting to paint a picture of the Great Commission for you that will be an encouragement. I want every one of us to feel challenged and convicted about this topic. But I don't want it to end there. I want you to walk away encouraged that you're living the most exciting time in the history of the world. And you have the most exciting challenge that any human being has ever had. And, and this is awesome, guys. This is really, really exciting stuff. The Great Commission starts with go. It's, it's an action, right? It says go into all the world. It doesn't say wait for people to come to you, but go into all the world. So it starts with action. It starts with us choosing to be on the same page with Him and stepping out in obedience to Him in action. First John 3.18 says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and in truth. So how significant is it to love God through action and in truth? I don't want to take away... From, from the significance of connecting God in a deep, 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 deep way. That is so significant. And if I'm not connecting with God, if I'm not abiding in the vine, John 15, then, then there's something missing. But if that doesn't translate into action, it's not true love. All this action of the Great Commission comes out of that heart for God, out of that connection with God. That's where it flows from. In Romans 12, 1, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Okay, now when we talk about worshiping God, there are a lot of facets of worship, including what we just did. Thank you guys so much for leading us in that time of praising God, telling Him how significant He is, putting Him in His rightful place of authority. Before we go and talk about all these other things and have all this fun this afternoon... But worship is a life of submission to God. It goes far beyond music. It goes far beyond Sunday morning. It's a life of submission to God in everything we do. That's why Jesus said in John 4.23, A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And I don't think he's talking about singing really fantastically. Thank God. A lot of us don't have the voices for that. He's talking about a life of submission to Him, lived in the truth of His Word and in the power of His Holy Spirit. That's this life of worship that He's called us to. I believe that the Great Commission that He called us to is one of the biggest ways that we can worship God, by reaching the world around us with His Gospel. That is true worship. And those are the kind of worshipers that He's looking for. And see, that's the thing, and I'll share this verse later. Acts 1.8 says that, that the Holy Spirit empowers us to witness. Isn't that cool? It's not our job. 
So, I mean, it's not our job to, to create momentum or to create motivation or to create energy to share our faith. He does it in us. So when we worship Him in spirit, I believe it's a lifestyle of submission to God empowered by His Holy Spirit where we can share Christ with everybody around us. And, it, and it's not because we're so special or so articulate or so eloquent, but it's because He's God and He's living His life through us. So Romans 8.17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Not only are we co-workers or fellow workers with God, but we are co-heirs with Him. So we, we reap in the same rewards. This life here is a life that He's given us to serve Him. But there will be rewards for all of eternity from this life. Right? There will be crowns that we can throw at His feet. We get to be co-heirs with Christ. But what does that verse say? It says, we'll also share in His sufferings. There's no way we can talk about the Great Commission without talking about opposition, because it's going to happen. As you obey Christ, you will be opposed by the world, by other Christians. I want to emphasize, on, on campus, we do a lot of evangelism and discipleship. I don't say this lightly. Our biggest opposition the last three years has come from Christians. We've even had people with a local church go to the campus and ask them to kick us off campus. I mean, we've had tremendous opposition even from Christians. We've had tremendous opposition from the world. You'll have opposition from circumstances. You'll have circumstances come up to prevent you from being obedient to Christ. Your own flesh is going to fight like mad. But isn't that true that our own flesh will fight sometimes what we know God is calling us to? To be disobedient. So you'll have opposition from multiple, multiple different areas. Jesus promised us that. Matthew 24, 9, he says, You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Doesn't sound fun. So we're going to have opposition. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we will have opposition. In the book of Acts, the early church had opposition in almost every single chapter from all those areas. But they still went on. And each one of us here can trace our spiritual lineage back to them and their obedience to Christ. So thank God they didn't stop when they were opposed. In chapter 2, Peter and the apostles are made fun of by the Gentiles. In chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and imprisoned. In chapter 5, the apostles are arrested, imprisoned, and flogged. In chapter 6, Stephen is arrested and falsely accused. In chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death. In chapter 8, the church continues to be persecuted. In chapter 9, the church continued to be persecuted by Saul, who you all know becomes Paul after his conversion. And even after his conversion, the Greek Jews tried to kill him also. In chapter 11, they are opposed by legalistic Christians. Even Christians were opposing each other and what God was doing. In chapter 12, Christians were persecuted by Herod and Peter was in prison. In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were opposed by Elymas the sorcerer. And they were talked bad about and persecuted by the Jews. In chapter 14, Paul was stoned and left for dead. In chapter 15, they were again opposed by legalistic Christians. And there again was disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Sometimes there will be disagreement between you and other Christians. Will that stop you? from being obedient to what God has called you to. In chapter 16, Paul and Silas were imprisoned and beaten in Philippi. In chapter 17, a rioting mob ran them out of Thessalonica. The Bereans were initially receptive towards them, but became agitated and stirred up by the same mob in Thessalonica that went to Berea to stir up and agitate the crowds against them. 
They escaped to Athens, and they actually were not persecuted tremendously in Athens. In chapter 18, they are opposed, abused, and arrested by the Jews in Corinth. In chapter 19, they are opposed by a rioting mob in Ephesus that wanted to tear them to pieces. In chapter 20, there was a plot against them by the Jews in Greece. In chapter 21, Paul was arrested and the Jews attempted to kill him in Jerusalem. In chapter 22, the Jews chanted, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Can you imagine if you were trying to share your faith? And somebody says, Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. That'd be opposition. I don't know if I'd continue sharing, you know what I mean? Might go, okay, uh, let's go watch the Broncos game. (laughs) Rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. And uh, after that, he was imprisoned. In chapter 23, Paul was put on trial. He was struck, and the Jews again plotted to kill him, vowing, quote, we will not eat anything until we have killed Paul. Imagine this. This is intense, intense opposition. But he won't let it stop him. And the early church wouldn't let it stop him, they ke- or stop them. They kept on going. In chapters 24, 25, and 26, Paul is put on trial between, uh, in front of Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. In chapter 27, Paul is shipwrecked. In chapter 28, he's bitten by a snake and imprisoned in Rome. This is opposition all the way through the book of Acts. But do you, do you find one spot where they stopped? They kept on going. They kept on going. Paul described it this way about himself. He says, I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. That's Paul describing his own opposition that he faced. And what did he say? He said, I count everything else rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Because I'm willing to go through all that stuff to be obedient to my Lord. Because nothing else matters. That is the only thing in this life that's significant. I have a purpose in this life, and nothing's going to stop me from it. Modern examples, guys. Two weeks ago, on April 18, 2007, five Muslims entered a Christian publishing company and killed three believers in the southeastern province of Malatya in Turkey. This is consolidated from a report by Voice of the Martyrs. The three believers were Tilman Geski, a German missionary, Turkish pastor Nikadi Aydin, and Ugur Yüksel, also Turkish. And they were having a Bible study and a prayer meeting where they'd invited these Muslim youth to come. They'd been sharing with them for several weeks. Uh, and after Pastor Nikadi had read one chapter, the Muslim men tied each of them up and began torturing them for three hours. Tillman was stabbed 156 times. Nikadi was stabbed 99 times. They, they were disemboweled. Their intestines were sliced up in front of their eyes. They were emasculated and watched as those body parts were destroyed. Their fingers were chopped off. Their noses, mouths, and anuses were sliced open. Finally, their throats were slit from ear to ear. In an act that hit front pages in the largest newspapers in Turkey, Tillman's wife, Susan Geski, get this, in a television interview expressed her forgiveness. She did not want revenge, she told reporters. Oh God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. She was quoted as saying, wholeheartedly agreeing with the words of Christ on Calvary in Luke 23:34. Turkish pastor Fikret Bocek argued, don't pray against persecution, pray for perseverance. 
the early church faced that opposition. Our brothers and sisters all across this world are right now facing that persecution. Where are we in the United States? This year, 140,000 Christians will be martyred worldwide. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, describing his trials, for our light and momentary troubles, our light and momentary troubles, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now how much lighter and more momentary are our trials? The worst thing that has ever happened to me, sharing my faith, was about two years ago, I was was taking one of our uh, students out to help him learn how to share his faith, and somebody threw a snowball and hit me in the back of the neck. That's the worst that's ever happened to me, sharing my faith. Ever. That's not much. I can't handle that. What are your hindrances that keep you from sharing your faith? Because we each have them. I have them. I have fears. I have a big thing for me is, a, is fear of men. Do you guys have that? I don't, I, don't, I don't want other people to think badly of me. I don't want other people to think that I'm just some stupid Christian. Whenever I think that about myself, I remember that clip of the coward in Saving Private Ryan. You guys remember that clip? Where he's on the stairs and this German guy is stabbing an American soldier to death in, in this room. And he has a gun. The German guy doesn't even have a gun. And he just sits there and cowers and he does nothing to save his brother's life. He just listens as the guy dies. And then the German soldier walks out of the room and he's coming down the stairs. And he, he won't even kill the guy. He just looks at him and the guy's just sitting there trembling. And the German soldier just walks right by him. And I always think of that coward. And I don't want to be that kind of coward just watching as people go to hell because I refuse to put my reputation on the line. I don't want to be that kind of coward. And far too often I have been. Have you ever doubted that you're capable? I know a lot of times we'll doubt. I'm not capable enough to do what God's called me to. Well, that's a lie. His Holy Spirit lives in you. And His Holy Spirit is more than capable enough Acts 1.8, His Holy Spirit is empowering you to witness. All you have to do is be willing and step out in obedience. So will you trust God with those doubts and with those things that, that, those oppositions that are hard to get past? What will you let stop you? Russ always quotes uh, Hendricks, right? Saying, the measure of man is what does it take to get him going and what does it take to stop him? What are we going to let stop us from being involved in this great commission, this third greatest commandment that God has called us to? Opposition as light as it is, in our case, always accompanies an open door and a ready harvest. Look what happened in the book of Acts. I mean, we're all here because of it. 1 Corinthians 16, 8-9, Paul says, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. He says a great door for sharing gospel is open there, and a lot of people are opposing me. I would never think to put those two in the same sentence. But that's true. When we face opposition, it's because there is a great door open to us. And so I want to challenge you, those areas that you see opposition, whether it be people that you don't think want to hear, or whether you see it as your own weaknesses, or whatever it might be for you, those same areas are open doors if you will let God use you, if you will trust God and step out in obedience. So don't shy back. This is the most exciting time in history to be involved in His Great Commission, guys. Matthew 9.37 says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, now grasp this. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Is God's word ever wrong? It's always true, right? So your co-workers, is, is that harvest plentiful? Isn't that hard to grasp? So often I look at the college students we work with and I think, they, they're fine with all the partying. They're not hungry. 
And then God convicts me, that's a lie you're believing, Nate. They're, they're, they're a ripe harvest. They're ready to be reached right now. Why are they pursuing all those drugs and alcohol they're pursuing and sex and all this stuff? They're pursuing it because they're empty. And they're searching for something to fill them up. And that stuff will not do the trick. Only Jesus will. And me and Aaron always say, either they're going to commit suicide or find Christ. It's like one or the other. Because nothing else satisfies. And they're looking harder than anyone's looked in history. So I want to encourage you that your, your co-workers are a ripe harvest. Your neighbor is a ripe harvest. Your relatives are a ripe harvest. Your softball team is a ripe harvest. The teams you play are a ripe harvest. The hobbies you're involved in, the people that, that you associate with, those are ripe harvests. And I want to encourage you not to believe the lie that the people around you don't want to hear. Even if they look like it. Even if they tell you. The first time I met Tom, he told me, whatever floats your boat, dude, <laughs> I, I don't want to have anything to do with that. About three months later, he accepted Christ. This is nine years ago now. And for nine years, we've hunted together, fished together, snowboarded together, skied together, skateboarded together, backpacked together, hiked together, camped together. You name it, we've done it. And we're the closest friends. And I thank God that God brought Tom to himself. But see, Tom told me straight to my face, whatever floats your boat, that's not for me. But now he's my brother in Christ. See, God was working in his heart, even when he didn't know it. Even when he had no clue. And it would have been a lie for me to believe that God wasn't working in his heart because he said that. Jesus said in John 12, 32-33, But when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And a lot of people have explained that verse to me saying, that means if we glorify Christ, he'll draw people to himself. Well, the very next verse says he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He'd be lifted up on a cross. He said if he were lifted up that way, he would draw all men to himself. So was he lifted up on that cross? So is he drawing all men to himself right now? Is there any person alive on this planet that he is not drawing? See, we can believe the truth of God's word that every single person you connect with is being drawn by Christ. And he is strategically putting you in that person's life to share the life of his gospel with him. And they might not respond. The average person comes to Christ after hearing the gospel six to eight times. So you might hear, no, 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 no. My dad was a great example to me of evangelism growing up. And uh, he'd go into the bars. <laughs> he'd start sharing the gospel with people that are drinking in the bars. And one night he shared with Tommy. But Tommy said, you know, I'm not interested. That night he went home, got on his knees, and asked Christ to come into his life. Tommy ended up pastoring Telluride Christian Fellowship for 17 years. Now he's pastoring uh, Hill Country Faith Ministries down in Texas. Thank God my dad was sharing with that guy in the bar, even when that guy said, I don't want to hear it. Thank God for that. My dad, by the way, doesn't even remember that story, but Tommy, Tommy shares it often. Personal example, Wally. Well, I'll start with Kelly. Kelly was a girl that I worked with. I was a shift manager for a snowboard shop when I was a student in college. And we'd have to do these pocket checks where we'd pull out our stuff to show that we weren't stealing. And it was just me and Kelly closing that night. And Kelly said, you always have this Bible in your pocket. She said, God would never accept me. I've had too much sex in my life. And I said, why do you, why do you say God would never accept you? And I got to share the gospel with her. And in tears, she, she prayed to receive Christ right there behind, behind the uh, counter at our work. Okay, but two weeks later, she brings her boyfriend to work, right, who she'd been living with. Her boyfriend is 
filthy rich. He's younger than me. At the time, I was 21, I think, and he was uh, 19 or 20, 20 maybe. He had started a concrete pumping company in Las Vegas when he was 17 or 18. This company now was huge, had a board of overseers and directors and all, and he was filthy rich. He had a $500,000 home in Las Vegas completely paid off. He had nice cars paid off. He had jewelry. He had, he had everything you could want. This guy is the exact kind of guy that I'd look at and say, he's pretty happy the way he is. If there's anybody that probably doesn't feel like they need a savior, it's probably him. You know what he tells me? He's, and Aaron was right there. This is so unbelievable. I'm glad my wife was there to see it so that she can vouch for its truthfulness. He tells me, if you don't tell me how to have Christ in my life, I will kill myself. I would have looked at this guy and said, man, he's plenty satisfied with life on his own. <laughs> he doesn't need a savior. He goes, I'm going to kill myself if you can't tell me how to get Christ in my life. He said, I've had everything. I've had riches. I've had girls. I've had homes. I've had businesses. I've had it all. And he goes, and I hate myself. I'm rotten. I'm, I'm terrible. I've cheated people. I've lied. I've done terrible things to other people. He said, I can't even live with myself. If I don't, if I don't find a savior, I, I'm going to commit suicide because I cannot live with who I am. I need Jesus. And again, just one more example of somebody that every single thought I have would have said, he's satisfied, he's not hungry, God is not working in his life. And all those things were lies that Satan would gladly have put into my head. And God was working on his life. So the harvest is plentiful. God's working on... I would challenge you, if if you don't walk away with anything else, walk away with this one thing. That is that God is working on every single person that you will ever contact for the rest of your life. And to trust Him. And, and, and to step out in your part, which is simply to share that gospel with that person and leave the results to God. That's the joy of the Great Commission. Because we're not responsible for their response. Because see, He's already working. Even when you share, that's part of Him continuing to work in their lives. This is exciting, exciting stuff. So God is working on the people around you. So believe it. I want to lay out a convincing argument that the harvest is very ripe worldwide and that our time to be alive is the most exciting time in history. So here's proof. Wycliffe has their plan to get a Bible translation project started in every single language on the planet by 2025. It's 18 years from now. It's their Vision 25. That's what they call it. Within the next 18 years, every single language on the planet will have a Bible translation project started in that language. That's exciting. That's never before happened in the history of the world where every single person will have an opportunity to read God's Word for themselves. The remotest villages, the the unreached people groups in China and I mean, my brother got to go to a people group in China that had never heard the gospel before just in January. He got to be the first person to share Christ in that area. We got to hear from a lady at this Denver Christmas conference over Christmas break. Her dad was from one people group and her mom was from another. And so she basically represented two unreached people groups. She was the first convert to Christianity from either people group in all of history. My, my buddy Austin, some of you guys know Austin, he told me, how ridiculous is this? Can you imagine we're going to get to heaven sometime and God's going to be, he's going to roll them out. Okay, here's the first German that ever accepted Christ. Here's the first Italian that ever accepted Christ. Here's the first Chinese person that ever accepted Christ. This is exciting stuff that we get to see in our lifetimes that nobody else has seen. 
Paul dreamt of this stuff. Peter dreamt of this stuff. We get to see it. We get to be a part of the fruit of their labor 2,000 years ago. They never saw this stuff. We do get to see this stuff. So Whitcliffe's Vision 2025, Worldwide Evangelism. Dr. Marvin Bittinger, he's authored over 175 college math textbooks. He's a professor of mathematics at Purdue University. He is uh, releasing a book, I think it just got released in April, called The Faith Equation, where he goes through mathematical reasons for trusting in Christ. It's, I got to hear him speak, and he had a lot of exciting stuff. He has taken current evangelistic trends and modeled them into the future. In the year 2033... He predicts that every single person capable of understanding the gospel will have been presented with the gospel. In our lifetimes, it is possible that every human being alive will be able to hear the gospel. That's never before happened in history. If we're around for, what is that, 26 more years, most of us will be alive then, getting to see that time when every single person on this planet will have heard the gospel. That's exciting stuff. Nobody else has seen this stuff. You guys, every single day in South America, there are 34,000 people turning to Christ. Every day in China, they estimate between 28 and 37,000 new believers. Every day, 28 to 37,000 new believers. Okay, in Africa, every single day, between 23,000 and 25,000 new believers. That number two, that came from... uh, the turn of the century. So I don't even know how it's increased since then. And that was just an average of numbers of new baptisms into the Christian faith in the last decade of the century. And averaged out, it was about 25,000 a day. That's amazing. And, and it's just exploding. Now, what, what would you suppose is the most unreached and unreachable people group on this planet that seems to be causing a lot of turmoil on the international scene right now? The Arab Muslims, right? Muslim nations. In my thinking, I started to believe this lie again. God isn't drawing Muslim people to himself. Wouldn't that be a tempting thing to believe? There's not a revival happening among Muslims? Okay, get this. In December 2001, so this is five years ago, or six years ago. In December 2001, Sheikh Ahmad Al-Qahtani, a leading Saudi cleric, appeared on a live interview on Al Jazeera satellite television to confirm that, sure enough, Muslims are turning to Jesus in alarming numbers. This is a Muslim sheikh on a Muslim TV station reporting this. And here's what he says. In every hour, 667 Muslims convert to Christianity. Al-Qahtani warned. Every day, 16,000 Muslims convert to Christianity. 16,000 a day. Every year, 6 million Muslims convert to Christianity. Stunned, the interviewer interrupted the cleric. Hold on, let me clarify. Do we have six million converting from Islam to Christianity? Al-Qahtani repeated his assertion every year. The cleric confirmed, adding, a tragedy has happened. Okay, that was in 2001. 16,000 Muslims accepting Christ a day in 2001. Since 2001, listen to some of these numbers. It'll blow your mind. In Afghanistan, before 2001, before 9-11... There were only 17 known Christians in the country of Afghanistan. Today, there are more than 10,000 just in that country. Is that not blowing your mind? So the numbers have only increased since then. In Iraq, there are thousands of new Christians since Saddam was overthrown. Many new churches are started. In Egypt, this will blow your mind, some reports say one million Egyptians have trusted Christ over the past decade or so. 
The Egyptian Bible Society used to sell about 3,000 copies of the Jesus film each year in the early 1990s. Last year they sold 600,000 copies in Egypt, plus 750,000 copies of the Bible on tape in Arabic. They also sold about a half million copies of the Arabic New Testament. The largest Christian congregation in the Middle East meets in an enormous cave on the outskirts of Cairo. Pastor Chuck was just in Egypt, and he told about how every time a Christian church starts in Egypt, the law says that if there is a mosque within three blocks of the church, the church has to shut down. And so a mosque is defined as anywhere where more than three Muslims meet. And so every time a new church starts, three Muslims go have a prayer meeting within three blocks, and they say, okay, you have to shut it down now. Okay, so where do these people meet? They meet in a cave outside of the city. And get this, some 10,000 believers worship there every weekend. Every weekend. 10,000. A prayer conference the church held in May of 2005 drew some 20,000 believers to a cave. In Kazakhstan, there are only three known Christians in 1990, but now there are more than 15,000. In Sudan, more than one million Sudanese have converted to Christianity just since 2000, and some five million have become Christians since the early 1990s, despite a radical Islamic regime and an ongoing genocide that has killed more than 200,000. So you guys hear about Darfur and how troubling that situation is? Well, five million Christians there in the last 15 years. Unbelievable. See, God is working everywhere across this globe, and we get to be here for it. It's like we get to see what nobody else saw. We get to be a part of what nobody else got to be a part of. This is exciting, exciting stuff. In Iran, potentially one of the most dangerous situations on the planet today, very close to getting nukes, hardcore Islamic regime. In 1979, there were only 500 known Muslim converts to Christianity in Iran. Today, Iranian pastors and evangelical leaders say there are more than one million Iranian believers in Jesus Christ. More than one million. Most of whom meet in underground house churches. One of the most dramatic developments is that many Muslims are seeing dreams and visions of Jesus. And that's coming into churches explaining that they have already converted and now need a Bible and guidance on how to follow Jesus. Everywhere across this globe, God is working like crazy. Because he is drawing those people to himself. There's never been a more exciting time to live. Never. Never. Worldwide. David Barrett and Todd Johnson of the Global Evangelism Movement have calculated that 174,000 people are accepting Christ every day. Okay, you'll hear you'll hear hear stories in the media saying Islam is the fastest growing religion. Islam is growing about 60,000 people a day through birth. So it's not people that have had a chance yet to make a decision what they will follow. They're counted as Muslims since, simply because they were born as Muslims. Still. The number of Christians is growing by almost three times that rate. I think both Satan and the media don't want you to know that. They don't want you to know that God is moving in huge ways across this planet. Don't you guys agree? This is exciting. Nobody saw this. Jesus himself, when he was on this planet, did not see this kind of stuff. I just feel sometimes, why do I get that privilege? Why do I get to live in this exciting time that nobody else has ever seen? So the opportunity has never been more dramatic. And the need has never been so huge. All of history has built up to this point. Grasp this. All of history has built up to today. Think about the globalization that is occurring worldwide. 
the positive side of globalization is that we, like never before, have an opportunity to impact people from every single region on this planet for Christ. We're joking that we're winning, we're winning France, one exchange student at a time. Because uh, a couple years ago, we had a French exchange student that accepted Christ, and, uh, and she went back to France, and now she's marrying another former student of ours. And, and then this year, we have a, a French foreign exchange student who is within just seconds of accepting Christ. Pray for her. So uh, you have an opportunity in Bayfield to reach China. Look at, look at Jeff. His daughter is Chinese. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, this is globalization that's never happened before. And it provides an opportunity for us to reach the entire world from right here. You probably have co-workers. You brought, my, my father-in-law is a nurse in, in Farmington. He tells me the doctors are from India and Eastern Europe and Pakistan. I mean, you name it. There are doctors from everywhere. They're coming here. We have an opportunity to reach the entire world right from our back door. That's never before happened in history. Think about multiplication opportunities. Transportation. Just think about that alone. You can go anywhere tomorrow. We could leave Durango. We did this last year. or Last year we had some trouble getting to Romania. But two years ago we left Durango. We were in Romania like 12 hours later. It's unbelievable. It used to take months. Think about the, the communication impacts. Look at this. I have a cell phone right here. I, I have on speed dial some of the Romanians that we work with, Audi. I can hit this button and talk with somebody 6,000 miles away now. Probably wake them up in the middle of the night, but you wouldn't like that. But we've never had those opportunities. How can the gospel spread through communication, through multimedia? A friend just called me yesterday that basically was responsible for getting my parents into full-time ministry growing up. I haven't talked to him in over a decade, Andy Huddleston. And he just he goes, man, I just got your, your number from another wildland contact, John Ray. And he says, I just want to know how you're doing, brother. You know? And so I'm sharing with him all this, and he's like my dad's age. He tells me, I've gotten really involved in uh, the multimedia scene. And I guess Wildland has started this entire multimedia branch. I know Crusade has a similar thing. And he says, we're coming up with all these creative, movie-oriented ways to reach people with the gospel. That's never been possible. Think of the Jesus film, the Jesus movie. I mean, hundreds of thousands of copies worldwide in almost every language on the planet where people can see the gospel presented to them in movie form. That's never been possible before now. Think about the significance of our language that we all speak. If this doesn't give us increased opportunities, I don't know what will. We all speak English. English is the, the language of the world. Honestly, we go to Romania, you don't need to speak one word of Romanian. Russ can vouch for that. You can spend the whole time in Romania, you can buy groceries, you can get taxi cabs, stay in hotels, and just do it all in English. Everything, do you see how everything is coming together for the greatest impact the history has ever known for Jesus Christ? I mean, every piece of the puzzle is aligning so that Christ can be glorified in ways that, that have never happened on this planet ever in the history of the world. Think about the current end time events that, that have been prophesied that we've all read about Israel becoming a nation about wars and rumors of wars. Even my dad always told me about, I forget where it is, but it talks about waves being the distress of the nations. And my dad, my dad liked the scripture buff. He knows every verse in the Bible. And he, he would tell me, I don't understand what waves distressing the nations is all about. And then the day after that big tsunami that killed 200,000 people, he calls me. He goes, now I understand. I'm trying to wrap this up, but I'm going to wrap some. Because I want, I want this to go home with you. I want this to go home with you. Okay, here's 0 A.D., around the time of Christ, right? 500, 
1,500, 2,000. In 0 AD, there were about a half a billion people alive on this planet, they, they think. About 500 years later, there are still about 500 million people, half a billion people. Keep going up to 1,500, guess how many people were there? Up to thousands, about five. Up to 1,500, might be around 600 million, but it's real close to five. Okay, in 1804, so this is like right here, 1804, the population reached one billion for the first time in history, just about 200 years ago. By just after 1900, here's 1900, it reached two billion. In 2000, any of you guys remember where it was in 2000? Six billion. You know where it's expected to be by 2033? When every single person alive will have been able to have heard the gospel? Nine billion people at that time in 2033. Okay, what I I want you guys to grasp is that this is no accident. This is no accident. God has worked it out. I believe, when I was in school, I, I took these classes about the population explosion and how it was the worst thing that's ever happened. We're all going to starve to death and that's why abortions are so important. I mean, all this liberal baloney, right? But this is God's plan. This is God's plan. It's all working together. The population is going through the roof at the same time that English is becoming the language that everybody understands so there are no more language barriers. At the same time that transportation allows us to go anywhere, anytime. At the same time that people are coming to me in my very backyard from Sri Lanka and every other single country on this planet. I realize God is working this out. It's the same time that the Bible can be translated into every single language on the planet. What I want you guys to understand is there's never been a time in history this exciting. God is working in huge ways. God is working, and for me, it's so easy as a Christian to believe a lie that, you know, it's not that big a deal. My, my neighbors don't really want to hear that bad. Well, they do. They do. This is it. It's the fourth quarter. It's the fourth quarter, guys, for you football buffs and fanatics. It's the bottom of the ninth in the seventh game of the World Series. And I think there's never been a time in history where the impact could be so large, where the potential is so big. Think about this. You're all men. If I told you, hey, you can be on the winning team of the Super Bowl next year, the winning team of the Super Bowl next year, but it's going to cost some time, you're going to have to give up maybe watching your favorite TV show, and you might have to give up eating your favorite foods, you might have to exercise a lot, and it might be a little painful, and you might not be able to have some of the comforts and luxuries that we're so familiar with. But you get to be on the winning team in the Super Bowl. The Steelers, maybe they'll do it next year. I'm hoping the Broncos do it. (laughs) But if somebody told you that, would you not do that? Wouldn't that be an exciting thing as a guy to be on the winning team of the Super Bowl? That's what God's saying to each of us as men. You get to be a part of the greatest victory that the world has ever known. Nothing in all of history has ever, ever, ever come anywhere near this. This is as exciting as it gets. It blows my mind that, that we get to be a part of this. You are here for that. When God put you here in 2000, 2007, Casey, it wasn't an accident. He knew that all this was going to happen before the, his, before the world began. And he chose to put you here for this very time and place. Now, now here's where the, the problem is. In the United States... I've heard it calculated that the number of believers is decreasing by 8,000 people a day. Because Christians are dying and not many new Christians are being made. Not many new people are coming to Christ. 
that comes right back to us. Acts 17.26, from one man, he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. Bayfield is not insignificant. Telluride is not insignificant. Durango, Cortez, Grand Junction, uh, Aztec, those are not insignificant. God determined beforehand the place and time that you should live so that you could be a part of his strategy to see the greatest number of people that have ever lived come to Christ. We're dropping the ball in America. Our brothers in China, they're doing an awesome job with, their, with the Great Commission God's given them. Our Muslim brothers and sisters in Christ, or our Arab brothers and sisters in Christ, they're dying to spread this gospel. And so often here in the United States, we're unwilling because our neighbor might think we're funny. And, and I, I think of it almost like a battle. We are letting our front go. It's like the enemy's just running us over. While everywhere else on the planet, there's victory. And we're allowing there to be defeat here. They say that within two years of becoming a Christian, most people have lost 80% of their non-Christian friends. Completely lost the influence potential with those friends. They're like, get this, in America, less than 2% of Christians share their faith. One in 50 Christians share their faith. Sometimes I wonder why we call ourselves evangelicals. And this is, again, a part of the challenge, so take this correctly. I want this to be as in grace as, as it can possibly be, and it's a challenge to myself, too. God tells Ezekiel, When I say to a wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to dissuade him from his evil ways in order to save his life, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his evil ways, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. See, now we live under grace. It's not quite that same strictness, I guess. But I think the heart is still there. That when God gives us his great commission to share with people that are lost, he desires that we not take that lightly, and that we realize that it's significant. In Judges 5.23, again another Old Testament verse, so temper it with grace, but realize God's heart. He says, Curse Meroz, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. This is what God's doing. And he said, you get to be my fellow worker. You get to come and help me. And I don't want to be one of these people where it says, Curse them bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord. Again, there's grace, right guys? But that God's heart is that we help him. And again, it comes out of a relationship with love. So have a strategy. I want to. I mean, Paul had a strategy. He went to Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus. In every single place, he goes to the synagogue of the Jews and begins sharing the gospel. In every single place but Athens, he gets run out of town. See, he had a strategy, and he wouldn't let opposition stop him. So what I want to encourage you in is, what's your personal strategy for reaching the people around you with the gospel? And you guys are all placed there strategically. Reproduction is a rule of biology. It's a rule of life. In biology, one of the definitions of life is that it reproduces. And so my encouragement is that as Christians, that we would be alive and that we would reproduce in a spiritual sense. That we would multiply in a spiritual sense. Paul said, when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Your weaknesses, inabilities, and failures present no challenge to God's plan for your life. Your weaknesses, inabilities, and failures present no challenge to God's plan for your life. Your willingness does. All he's looking for is somebody to say, I'm willing. I'm willing. I'm scared to death. I don't know a thing. And I don't have much to give. 
Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 that he's used the shameful and despised things to shame the wise. He said, you don't have to be Billy Graham. You don't have to be A-Rod. You don't have to be John Elway. You can just be you and willing, and that's enough. And he'll do awesome things through you. Again, Acts 1.8 says that his Holy Spirit will empower you to witness. It's not from you. It says you simply are willing and submit to him and allow him to work through you. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. And get this, this is love for God, to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. See, a lot of times I see evangelism and discipleship as a burden. Don't you guys see it that way? I So often I do. If you don't see it that way, I'm so glad. And I do it, I, I do it regardless, but so often it is a burden to get that ball rolling, Right? And, and here's what God says. His commands are not burdensome. So I know when I feel burdened about it, it's, and it's a feeling that's not correct. Because sharing my faith is the most exciting thing that I can do too. When I hear Wally tell me, if you don't tell me how to have Christ in my life, I will kill myself. That's exciting. Because I get to share Christ with him. And he gets to see his entire life transformed. Multiplication and the Great Commission. 2 Timothy 2.2 2 says, And the things you have heard in me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust reliable men who will be qualified to teach others also. So four generations. Paul, Timothy, reliable men, others also. So Paul is giving us this, this, this great commission template for multiplication, evangelism, and discipleship. And he goes, that's the key. That's the key. How many? There are right around 45 or 50 of us here at this retreat right now. Let's say 45 for rounding. I think it's around close to 50, I don't know. But if 45 of us, if we start multiplying once annually, you can plug this into a spreadsheet at home or whatever, once annually, and then that group multiplies once annually. See, this is not impossible. This is very possible. You know how long it would take for us to reach 12 billion people? More than everybody alive on this planet? 29 years. Puts us right there. Does that blow your mind? I just think it's all just a coincidence. You know, like God has put us here for this very time. <laughs> Gordy says, when you start showing Braveheart again? I said, yeah, this is Braveheart. You know, like when he's rattling the swords and saying, there's a battle and we can win it. This is, that's this, that's today for us as Christians. And I hope we can leave this place and go, I'm not this, just this little piddly Christian, just, there's, God's never going to do much with my life. I want you to go back and go, my community is one. <laughs> my community is, is, is coming to Christ. Because God placed me there strategically. It's not an accident. You're there strategically. So reaching this world is very possible. Now, in conclusion, Bill Bright said, there are no happy, disobedient Christians, and there are no unhappy, obedient Christians. Get that? There are no happy, disobedient Christians, and there are no unhappy, obedient Christians. Philemon verse 6 says, I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So, there is no fulfillment without risk, challenge, or adventure anywhere on the planet. Fulfillment, happiness, passion, all that requires risk, challenge, and adventure. The Great Commission epitomizes all three. There is a lot of risk. There is a lot of challenge. And it is adventurous. And here's what I want to encourage you in. If you feel like your life lacks meaning, significance, fulfillment, and just plain fun, I would encourage you to start sharing your faith more. Because it is the key to the most exciting life this world has ever known. 
Okay, now as, as men, I know you guys all want to live a life of meaning, right? And if you guys want to live and nobody will ever remember you. No, you guys want, to, you guys want people to remember you. Okay, I thought about this one, one day. What would I have to do in this life to be remembered ten years after I die? Think about that. How much would you have to do to be remembered ten years after you die? What? What about 25 years after you die? What would you have to do to be remembered 25 years from now? What would you have to do to be remembered 100 years from now? How about 1,000 years from now? Would that be a pretty significant life if people remembered that life 1,000 years from now? Okay, now here is my encouragement. Every single time you share your faith, you're impacting eternity. For all eternity, there are going to be people that are in heaven because we are obedient and stepped out and let God work through us. I mean, that dwarfs anything I could ever do on my own on this planet. It's amazing. The life of impact that we as men so earnestly desire is guaranteed as we step out in obedience. You guys saw Gladiator, good guys movie? Mm-hmm. Russell Crowe said in there, what's done in this life echoes for eternity. That's so true, man. It's, it's so true. It echoes for eternity. This is impact that will be remembered for eternity. We don't do the Great Commission because we'll be remembered. It is the key to fulfillment. It is the key to significance. It is the key to a life of impact that we so earnestly desire. But we do it out of obedience for Christ and out of love for Him. Jesus said in John 14, 15, He said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. So it it starts with a connection with God. That's all it is, is this connection with God. Isaiah 6, 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. So I pray that each of you today, including myself, would leave this place with this attitude saying, here am I, God. Use me. Use me. I don't care where. I don't care how. But use me. Here am I. You have a workplace around you that needs to hear the gospel. You have friends. You, you, you younger kids, you guys have friends that, that are totally capable of accepting Christ into their life. I've prayed with four and five-year-olds to accept Christ. I know that they are capable, and you guys are twice that age. So you guys have friends that are capable of making those decisions to trust Christ. You guys have people in your classes, students that you go to school with, that need to hear that gospel. Right after the, uh, the Virginia Tech massacre, I heard that they, that they arrested a high school kid planning to kill 100 students at his school. Imagine if, if one of his peers would have been able to share the gospel with him. Imagine if chose peers to share the gospel with him at Virginia Tech. I don't know what the situation might have been. You know, a lot of times I wonder, has somebody that we've led to Christ on campus, would, would they have done something like that at Fort Lewis? And this year, one of our girls that accepted Christ, she was probably the darkest person I knew on campus. I would smile at her before she accepted Christ, and she would just look, mm, like, look angrily back at me. The end of the year uh, bonfire, we're all sitting around the bonfire telling stories. You know what she says? She says, this year, I accepted Christ. And she she goes, before I accepted Christ, I was so depressed and so lonely. I hated myself. And she said, I looked around, and every single person that was happy, I wanted them to die. And when she said that, I thought, man, maybe maybe she's the one. Maybe she would have killed 20, 30, 40 students at Fort Lewis College. But now she knows Jesus Christ. There are people around us that need to hear him. There are relatives that need Jesus And it's awkward sharing at family reunions and stuff. But man, that's not a very high price to pay to see them have an eternity with Christ. They're neighbors that need to know Jesus. Are you fathers? Your own kids desperately need to see an example of a man that loves God. So that they can grow up 
following that example. Gosh, those are all ways that you can share. Friends, classmates, all that stuff. You can give to people that are in full-time ministry. I have so many friends right now that are raising support. I try to support as many as me and Aaron possibly can. There's a huge need for, for more Christians to support missionaries. You could even do a mission trip. The, see, the, the mission field is right around you. But that's another idea too. So remember as you leave, the harvest is plentiful. And God is already working on every single person in your sphere of influence. If you don't feel like you know how, you probably came with a pastor this week. Ask him to teach you how. Ask him to teach you how. Or maybe another Christian in your life. Uh, Mainly, guys, be willing. Just be willing. Your weaknesses, inabilities, and failures present no challenge to God's plan for your life. Your willingness does. And that's, that's all I want to leave you with is, are you willing to be used right now in the fourth quarter, in the bottom of the ninth, in the seventh game of the World Series? This is exciting stuff.